Hi everyone, welcome to Human to Human. I'm your host Sarah Scher, and this is the very first season of the University of Manitoba's Anthropology Department podcast, where I hope to explore the topic of anthropology through conversation with faculty and students so that everyone can have a better understanding of what anthropology is and can be. This podcast was also created on a campus located on the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. As a podcast dedicated to anthropology, this project is also a part of the Anthropology Department's commitment to community engagement and research on the rich, diverse, and multifaceted ways of being human. Once again, I'm your host Sarah Schur, and this is Human to Human. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Human to Human. I'm Sarah, and today I get to sit down with my special guest, Dr. Lara Rosanoff-Gauvin, to talk about their work in anthropology, as well as the ways their background in communications and film has informed the way they do research. Dr. L is a sociocultural anthropologist, as well as an assistant professor here at the University of Manitoba in the Department of Anthropology, whose research interests have focused on armed conflict, indigenous knowledge, social repair, as well as other topics like transitional justice and land tenure, and also multimodal methodologies, particularly in the context of Uganda and Eastern Africa. In 2019, Dr. L received an engaged anthropology grant to further support her project in northern Uganda, which has incorporated using radio broadcasting, documentary photography, and youth-created cultural revival programs to look at questions of social repair, indigenous knowledge, and land rights in the context of those who have lived through violence and displacement. Dr. L is also the founder and creator of the Liu Institute for Global Issues Lobby Gallery and co-founder of UBC's Transitional Justice Network. Dr. L, it's so nice to be able to chat with you today. So thank you for being here. Of course, it's good to be here, Sarah. So me and you have obviously been in communication um, because you were the one who came to me about this podcast and you were also the supervisor for me for this project. <laughs> <laughs> so in case I might all of a sudden call you Lara, that's sort it's of why. Good. It's all good. <laughs> so I know that you didn't start your university journey with studying anthropology and that you actually have a bachelor's degree in communication studies and a master's in fine arts in documentary media. So I was just wondering if you could share with us a bit about your interest in communications and media and how you found yourself going into anthropology later in your academic career. Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, In a distant place (laughs) called Montreal, (laughs) I decided to go into communication studies at Concordia University, and it was part theoretical program. So the way humans communicate, have communicated through time different media that they use, but it was also practical. So we learned sound editing, for example, film editing, photography, and there was television also. At the time, film was like 16 millimeter film, just to really dates me, I know. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Um, so I had done that program mostly because I was interested in uh, documentary, documentary film specifically. Um, and I thought that it was something I would like to devote my life to or that I would be happy working in. Um, I was interested at the time in more cross-cultural documentaries. And really, I think probably it's still my impetus is just to break down a lot of the barriers people have in thinking about the quote-unquote other, right? Mm. Um, To really try to foster communication between different peoples, different cultures, people within the same culture from different socioeconomic backgrounds, but really to look at communication as a way to bridge people. 
and for people to be able to understand each other better and have conversations like this one. But yeah. <laughs> um, So I did that for my bachelor's and then I ended up working as a documentary photographer, which is not super lucrative and I had to pay my rent. And okay. I worked in um, the film industry in Montreal, totally kind of a tangent in locations. So I would location scout and do contracts, get permits from the city for big Hollywood films. Oh, wow. And after about eight years of doing that with doing documentary photography on the side, which I loved, I just realized that I did not want to spend my time working for Hollywood movies as fun as they could be. It was just many hours and a lot of my energy for something I didn't particularly believe in. And around the time where I was getting antsy, um, I was invited to be part of a documentary about the war in northern Uganda. This is about 2004. And it would be voluntary, which I was totally up for, of course. And I took time off from film, which I was able to. That was the good part about it. And um, I started learning about a war that had been going on for about 20 years in northern Uganda. Um, and so I was part of this Canadian crew that went over um, and worked with a researcher who had been in Uganda for a few years. And again, because I told you a little bit of my interest about how communication could really bring or how documentary and, you know, the idea of the way that people communicate could bring people together towards mutual understanding. I thought it was really important that a Canadian film crew making a film about the war in Uganda was really informed by Ugandans themselves and those mm. who are at the heart of the war. Um, and so we put together a community advisory board, which had local NGOs and local community groups um, telling us what stories we should tell um, about the okay. war itself. And, you know, from there, I, I was doing photography while I was there as well, helping out with the film. And then I came home and put together a photo essay and also made the photos available to the local groups that were helping us so that they could use those photos for their own communication or to apply for grants, you know, and you know, from donors and things like that. And then slowly um, I started, you know, people invited me to talk about the war using the photos that I had. And then there was this one professor who was like, well, you know, why don't you continue working in Uganda? Because I was telling him that I didn't want to not go back. I had made, you know, started relationships mm -hmm. with people and I felt like I couldn't just move on. Like I had one photography teacher was like, oh, what war zone are you going to next? I said, no, there's there's no way. It was not what I wanted to do. I really wanted to continue the relationships I had and try to really understand what was going on. And also to look more deeply about the photos that I create. And if I show them in Canada or the United States, like what are the purpose of those photos? Is it to inform people that there's a war? Is it to spur them to political action? Is to get them to donate. So I was really starting to think about my role as a documentarian more than the initial mm -hmm. communication brings people together. Um, and so this professor suggested that maybe I should go to graduate school to have the space and time to think about these things. And that's how I ended up back at grad school, like nine years after I finished my bachelor's degree. And so that's when I okay. found this. Yeah, it was quite a long time after. Um, and that's when I found there was a new program at the time at the university formerly known as Ryerson. It was a Master of Fine Arts in Documentary Media. And so I decided to go there. And that way I would have two years to really think more about my role as a documentarian and a producer of communications, but also to be able to go back to Uganda. And um, Can I quickly yeah. ask you, like take you back to the part where you're, you finished your bachelor's degree. Are you in your early 20s at this point? I was in my mid-20s. You're mid-20s, um, okay. I guess it, yeah, mid-20s. It doesn't necessarily matter, but I was just wondering... You were asked to go to northern Uganda to film, I guess, war. 
at that point, had you traveled Yeah, so I was, seas? I graduated, like, when I was 24, I guess, from my okay. bachelor's. But then I had worked for that period of time, and I'd done documentary photography. So I had traveled quite a bit on my own. Okay. Never to Uganda, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but I had been back and forth to Palestine and Israel and India. Oh, wow. And Laos and Vietnam, like, different places in the world. But then when I was asked if I wanted to go to Uganda, that was the first time of uh, going anywhere on the African continent, really. And I guess you, you had experience with being in these, like, war conflict countries um, where lots of people are experiencing violence. Were you, were you concerned at all about the content of what you would have to see as well as experience while you were out there? You know, it's an interesting... So I, I grew up... I'm the granddaughter of survivors of the Holocaust, and so I always grew up with, you know, stories of violence or, or stories of, of trying to rebuild lives after violence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just, you know, when you grow up in that situation, it's part of your family history. It's just people experience war. And there's all these questions. Being the granddaughter who haven't experienced it, but having, you know, very close relationships with people who have. And so I wasn't, I mean, it wasn't an unknown in that sense, because I had some real tangible connection to it. But I also at the time was naive, <laughs> I could say. And I think when I grew up, and I'm just, I'm going on that tangent with my grandparents for a reason. When I grew up, I always wondered, especially when I was young, like, well, why didn't, why didn't the world do anything if all these mm -hmm. Jews were being killed? Like, why, how did it get to six million without anyone knowing? That's how I felt, you know, when I was young, like, how could that have happened? And then people would say, oh, people didn't know. Like, of course, people said that. I know differently now that obviously many people did know and that, you know, that turn to violence and fascism is very subtle, I think, and turns on a dime. We could see it around the world today. But at the time, I felt like if I could tell people about it, perhaps that would, you know, people at least couldn't claim that they didn't know it was yeah. happening. And so that was, you know, I was young. I was, you know, in my mid-20s or late-20s by the time I got to Uganda. But that was really kind of like the personal impetus for going. Okay. And then you hadn't finished, I guess. So now you're you're doing your master's in documentary media, and you're really considering and reflecting more about what it means to be a documentarian. And yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> so I was really just wondering like what the purpose was, like because I was questioned that what I said was my naive stance of um, if you tell people, you know, it, it will somehow end. Like somehow this idea that informs citizenry. <laughs> will create a better world. And I was really like, actually, that's not quite true, right? There's something very naive that if people know all the horrors in the world, that those horrors will end. And so I was really questioning what my role was and what the point was. Like, was it to be a witness in that case? You know, was it to establish relationship? Was it to bring stories that people want told, which is really what, you know, the, the stance we had taken. If they want us to tell their stories, then we could amplify their voices, you know, within Canada or the United States, for example. So I was really just looking at that and what the purpose was in terms of politics and where documentary communications fit into it. Um, but what I did is when we, when I was, when I was in the, my master's program, I did go back several times to Uganda. And at that point, halfway through, there was a ceasefire and so I was able to stay for a longer time in an internal displacement persons camp, IDP camp. 
And then I met one woman who I would like continue to work with throughout my master's and to tell the stories she wanted told about herself mm -hmm. and to do photos with her and photo voice with her and just to be able to really follow her story as she had come back to the camp after having been abducted by the rebel group, how she was reliving her life, what it was like when people had to now leave the camps, like where would they go back to their ancestral lands. And then I started to learn all these other things that I think probably led me into anthropology that, you know, she became pregnant, um, for okay. example. And so she wouldn't go back to her own land. She would be going back to her husband's ancestral lands. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm into this space where I'm hearing about all these clans, but clan is a strange word, but different kin group meetings, right? People coming together as they're returning to their land during the ceasefire. And so what is happening with all this, you know, really indigenous forms of governance and law that are starting to come back up as the ceasefire goes down. And so like kind of like it, it led me into this whole other um, sets of concerns for people during or at the tail end of war as well. And how would you say you made one comment about the NGOs wanting you to go there, wanting you as well as the other groups of people from Canada to go there to report on certain stories? Was there like a difference between what the NGOs wanted you to tell versus when you got to know this woman and the stories that she wanted to tell? Well, there was a different level of intimacy, I think. And for the NGOs, um, what was important, you know, I think there were several different layers of it. The NGO, the local groups, like their local community organizations um, wanted to highlight not only what was happening, you know, to their families, to their people, to their communities, but also the real efforts of local groups to attempt to deal with those, which I think we also don't hear very much about when you're speaking about war in a different part of the world, for example. And so the efforts that mothers came together and formed these local groups to try to get their youth back from the rebels, for example. Just, just as one short example, and I won't, but there's many, mm -hmm. many instances that they really did want to highlight the, the work that local people have been doing in trying to address the multitude of problems that had come about because of the violence in the war. And with, with Beatrice, her name is Beatrice, actually okay. that, was the name, <laughs> that was the name of the project that we had done together was Her Name is Beatrice, oh. so like not, you know, a war-affected youth or not yeah. a former, it was all about Beatrice. They were much more personal about what it's, what it was like you know, what it was like to grow up during the war. She was born into the war. So she didn't know anything else. And what it's like to imagine no war at the time. Right? Okay. And of course, I still yeah. know her, so we still talk about these things. But um, so it was a much more intimate, you know, and within the camps, being young, she was like 16 when I met her. Just what it was like to navigate that life, you know. And so it was a lot. It, it was very different than what the local community-based organizations wanted us to focus on. Okay. And I think that that's a topic that we talk about in anthropology quite a bit, um, what NGOs are doing in other parts of the world. And as anthropologists, when we go there, if, if we consider what the NGOs are doing align with, I guess, what the community members also want yeah. or the way they yeah. see things. Absolutely. Um, and that's like, there's the international NGOs, then there's like the local community-based organizations. And even that would differ, right, in terms of what the concerns are the way they would tell the story, I guess, since we're talking about that. And then someone like Beatrice, who's really at the heart, you know, of, of all these conversations around youth and war, for example. And, okay, well, this mm -hmm. is her story and these are her experiences. And I found it's like 
actually very rare to hear. Um, And not just like one interview for like 10 minutes at one period of her life, but to really be able to understand over three years and now longer. I've known her since, you know, 2006, but to really understand and for her to be able to tell that story over time. When you met Beatrice, you were finished or you were working in your master's in documentary media? I think it was right before I started my master's. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was the, a lot of her questions that kind of made me be like, oh, I would like I would like to pursue this. You know, I don't want to just go mm-hmm. somewhere else. Would you say that your relationship with Beatrice sort of spurred you on to go study anthropology as a doctorate degree? I would say it was partially because it was the questions that she had had, like towards the end of the project or towards the end of the time when I was finishing my master's and towards the end of her time in the displacement camp kind of coincided. Um, She was, again, it was this question of, well, what is life without the war? Like, what is life not growing up in the camp? And for her, there was this question about, actually, I could remember the exact moment I said, well, be just, you know, we've had, we've prepared these shows. We did different shows in Canada together and prepared the photos or a video. And I said, well, do you want to have a show in Uganda? Like, would Mm -hmm. you like to have the show? And she was like, I don't have anything to say to, you know, to people here. They know my situation. What Mm -hmm. I want to learn from them is I want to learn and I want to listen. And I want to know what it is to be a good Acholi, which is what um, self-identify as Acholi. Um, and what that means to, to live from the land, going back on ancestral land. And so she had all of these questions about her own cultural context and upbringing, which she wasn't able to access during the war, being displaced off the land and then having been with the rebel group. And it was that question that I would say. And I was like, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> like what her wanting to have that sense made me realize there are all these youth who grew up in war away from their lands who were disconnected in a sense from those um, that way of life, from those teachings by virtue of being off their land and the violence that they were experiencing. And so it was that question that I was like, yeah, that's, that's actually a really interesting point that when most people think about post-war or transitional justice, Sorry, I just bumped the mic. It's a large cultural question that a lot of, I mean, particularly policymakers definitely don't think about. You know, they look at addressing direct violence or truth and reconciliation commissions about Mm -hmm. what actually happened. But what about those youth who have been, you know, somewhat disconnected for two decades? Um, And so it was those questions that made me think about what I was able to eventually speak about as intergenerational knowledge. Um, or indigenous knowledge transmissions after war, like what their impact was during war and and displacement, and then how that kind of researched or how youth reconnected with adults and how adults even reconnected with elders as the war ended and they returned home to their ancestral lands. I was also wondering then if you could speak a bit more on the research that you are currently working on, who you're working with, what you're looking at, Absolutely. So part is, as you said, we had gotten that grant in 2019, which was in Uganda, and it was the work with Beatrice transformed. And I did go back to one specific village for my Ph.D. work and stayed there um, for eight months. And it really became a lot about this question of indigenous knowledge and indigenous law and governance resurging after the war as people returned to their lands and what that in itself has to do in terms of called it social repair, but I think it's relational repair, people's restoring relationships with the land, with each other, within their kin groups, and because of that indigenous governance or law. And then something happened after the war, too, is that 
a lot of kin groups, clans or subclans, started to write down constitutions or their indigenous governance or law for the first time. Mostly it was oral, oral tradition. And they found a need, particularly because of that break of 20 years or so away from their land and the camps and everything that Beatrice asked about, you know, what does that mean? And so there was this need to write it down. But I think also just the writing down process was bringing people together to discuss, to negotiate, to really talk about, like, what does this mean? And how will people access land? And what are the rules we want within our own villages, our own kin groups? And so that was part of the research I did right at the end of my PhD and then for my postdoc. And then that engagement grant was really bringing <laughs> people together in different places to talk about those constitutions okay. and um, to talk about it on the radio and then have people phone in and, and see which different clans, subclans, which different indigenous governance organizations had been doing that. And, you know, over the last 10 years, what difference that has made. So that's what's going on in Uganda. <laughs> How would you say that like your your background in documentary media and communication has maybe influenced the way that you wanted to approach anthropology or the way that you would do research and carry out research? So I think in a sense, the doing is what brought me into relationship with people, you know, because it began simply with making the film or putting a photo essay together. So that kind of initiated relationships. In terms of how I ended up in anthropology, we talked a bit about that. But I think in a sense, the way that I use media have slowly shifted. And possibly that's because I did go into anthropology. And so even when I did my PhD, for example, I didn't, I wasn't the impetus behind creating any media. Mm. For example, like the media that I did have along with my thesis was a f- like a series of photographs, but it was photographs that people in the village where I was in Pabwach wanted of themselves. Okay. And so they asked me to be their photographer, essentially, and I printed photos and brought it. But they had instructions about, you know, they wanted their full body shown. And so those were the portraits, these kind of self-portraits, but not self-portraits, that I had to accompany my thesis. And so I I wasn't the one directing more, but I have the skills, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I was able to supply that. And then I think for me, being open to that allowed me, in a sense, to see another dimension of... In that case, during my PhD, it was how people um, repair relationships after war. And partially because there was, you know, people wanted photographs of themselves back on their ancestral land. And they were proud to be there. And and there was something in those photographs that spoke to, that then resonated with whatever theory, <laughs> just say it blatantly, um, I was writing about, you know, about moving on after war, about repair of relationships after war. And I think, to me, having that visual element kind of compound in that, because I think often you think, again, moving on after war, and you think about the violence, and you're addressing directly the violence. But, you know, people there, that wasn't a large part of actually how you move on and how you rebuild your life. And part of that is being back on your land and being proud to be back on your land. And so to me, like it resonated with what I was being taught in other ways. And I think with the radio programs as well, the, it's become more of a means. Mm. Um, and maybe it brings us back to the beginning, a means of having interesting conversations, for example, like having those radio programs about the constitutions. The communities wanted those. It seemed to provide a, a forum where, you know, an excuse to come together to speak about this um, in a directed way. Because people are busy, you know, people are, are, are working and small scale farming and 
yeah. working in schools and doing all the other jobs. And so to have that opportunity for communication, I think. For me, I see media now more like that in terms of my work. If I could provide opportunities that people would like through communications and through media, then that's kind of the way that I see it. So as an anthropologist, you've kind of moved away from being like behind the camera to more providing the equipment to other people that you're working with. I think it's providing opportunities because sometimes I'm still behind the camera, but I'm not the one instigating it. Okay. I would say really. I'm still using those skills, but in different ways, I would say. I kind of let the work itself guide it. It's a toolbox. (laughs) Didn't I teach that in my methods class? (laughs) It's a toolbox. I haven't taken methods with you. Okay, yeah, so I teach it. as You have like a toolbox of methods, and then you let the community or whatever the work is guide what you use. Interesting, yeah. yeah. And I can see that metaphor, that analogy, based on some other things that we've talked about in other classes, like even our theory, anthropology theory class that I took with you last semester. I'm looking at the ways that different anthropologists, I guess, even incorporate theory in that case. I always say, I just want to be useful. I want to be a useful academic. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I just want to yeah. be useful to whatever community I'm engaging with. And, yeah. you know, whether that was, you, you know, in northern Uganda and the village of Pabwatch or in the IDP camp or within my own anthropology department. Like, I have certain skills and how could they be useful in a given context. And in a sense, it isn't absolutely up to me to decide. In that sense, it's my toolbox. But then it's really guided by the people I'm working with and by the work itself. Yeah, I think that was very clear. You're giving me a face that (laughs) makes it look like you don't know what you just said. But I think that was very well put. And I think that I'm probably going to remember that I want to be useful. That's a nice purpose. Yeah. I was wondering if we could return back to your research in northern Uganda. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering, what is something that you that you learned from working with those indigenous communities in terms of how they work to restore and also, I guess, repair their social ties after living through periods of war and violence and displacement? I guess it's really what they taught me. It was my big lesson mm-hmm. of, of all my time there was really um, one goes through violence and violence marks you marks your descendants like I'm still marked by what my grandparents went through to a certain degree but to really understand how you know you live in the present and you think about the future or how you make that future there's a part of you that has to kind of refuse even though it does affect you and even though it's important and again will affect descendants there's a part of you that refuses to be defined by that violence Mm -hmm. at least that's what I learned from the community in Uganda and Everyone's like, oh, but you're saying violence isn't important. I'm like, I'm not saying violence isn't important, but to live in the everyday and to create your life and recreate your life and to live, I think there's a part of you that can't be defined by what that violence did to you, who that violence said you were. And I don't know if that makes sense, like in the way I'm saying it now, but that was really the large lesson um, that I learned from them. And, And this was a place where, For example, I'll give you some context, like within the village, within the clan, some were abducted and forced to fight for the rebel group, and some were conscripted by the UPDF military, and then all were displaced within the IDP camps at certain points. And so you had, you know, pitted together in this war. It wasn't like one clear group against another, which also has complications, but just to give you context, it was within one family even. You would have youth and people on both sides. 
And so maybe even more importantly in that situation, although I think always is people weren't defined by the violence of those years. And so then how to create relationships anew, not within those parameters, you know. And in a sense, I think when I think of transitional justice writ large and how it really focuses only on the Violence Act and in addressing that, certainly that's a part of it. And people want justice in that sense, you know, for, for, for certain violent acts. But sometimes to see outside of those lines and to understand how people need to recreate their lives not not within those bounds, not within the frame of the violence of those war years. If I think of my grandmother, even I go back to it, it's like she didn't speak about the war very much. She didn't speak about losing you know, her entire family very much. It certainly defined her, and I'm sure she lived it every day. But the stories she did tell a lot were of after the war, of refinding her sister, of starting a business so she could raise money to walk across the mountains to a displacement camp in Italy. It was stories of survival. You know, and I think in a sense to survive, that's what you need to focus on to a large degree, too. So, yeah, not being defined by that violence was, I think, for me, um, the importance. And there's like this anthropology (laughs) concept. Um, Simpson. Audra Simpson? Audra Simpson, thank you. (laughs) You were, I taught that book in theory class. Um, She talks about refusal. She Mm -hmm. talks about it in different ways, but one of these is that it's not a resistance to a power. It's really not letting that power define you, not participating in the discourse of what that power is trying to create, the reality that that power is trying to create. And so, you know, Audra Simpson's idea of refusal really resonated, I think, with what I was being taught by the people in PubWatch. Well, I thank you for for sharing that, sharing part of like what you experienced and the times that you had and the relationships that you had with those people. And I think that something that I take away from this too is that you need to be careful not to define people by the violence that they've experienced. Um, And sometimes that can be very hard, I think, in the social sciences. Um, So I thank you. Thank you. I think that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to anthropology too, because it, it allows more space and time for mm-hmm. people to tell their own stories also to have that rather than just in you know a short interview for example well this has been great to hear about your projects within anthropology and the different like methodologies that you've used um, so to wrap up this conversation i do have let's say two quick questions okay what is like one of your favorite foods or dishes to eat i love squash my husband has a market garden oh and so he grows the most delicious squash it's really really good and it like lasts all the way until like the next summer. And it's always sweet and always delicious. <laughs> Do you eat all different types of squash? Yeah. Okay. He grows like a ton of different types of squash. Wow, that is very cool. <laughs> that is not what I was expecting. And you can do anything like with that. it too. Like you can make it sweet, you can make it savory, yeah. dessert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Okay, my last question. Um, what is like one place that you would like to travel to again? It could be... You've been there before or someplace that you've never been. I really need to go back to northern Uganda. So I I, I was going very regularly for a long time. And then I had my children. Mm -hmm. And then I was still going. Like I weaned both my children because I got on a plane to go to Uganda. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But since uh, COVID, I haven't been back. Okay. And so I really um, am planning to go back. So that's really where I would want to go. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. And I hope that 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 will happen for you. It will. It will. I I also want, like, my children haven't come with me. They've met my husband, Ryan, because he came with me during field work. um, But they haven't met the children yet. So I definitely want to bring the kids, too. 
Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. Okay. It'll be good. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you, you Laura. So this brings us to the end of this episode here on Human to Human. If you are new to anthropology, I hope you are able to gain a better understanding of what anthropology is and some of the different methods that sociocultural anthropologists incorporate into their work. I also hope you will join me in my final episode, which will be out in exactly two weeks, where I do an interview with Kayla Shaganash, who is currently a fourth-year student in anthropology here at the University of Manitoba. In my interview with Kayla, she shares with us how her double major in anthropology and indigenous studies has provided her with the research opportunities to learn more about the history of her own community, as well as the cultural history of other surrounding indigenous communities in Manitoba. We'll also learn more about the different programs Kayla is involved with and her continued passion for helping Indigenous students remain connected to their culture here on campus. If you want to hear more from this podcast, Human to Human is available for listening on several platforms. We are on Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, as well as YouTube. If you like this episode or have any questions, it would be great to hear from you in the comment section. We also have an email that you can contact the podcast through, and that will be included in the description box down below. I would also like to give a special thanks to the people at UMFM for providing me with the space and equipment to make this podcast possible, as well as the Department of Anthropology for funding this project, and of course, Dr. Laura Rosanoff-Govan, Dr. Warren Clark and Dr. William Flynn at Carleton University who have been some of my supporters in making this project happen. 